Hello, and welcome to another episode of My Wax Museum. I'm Alex Williams, your host, and today I'm joined by my friend and fellow podcaster, Layla Jerusalem. Layla is amazing, has crazy stories to share today. Uh, so I'm I'm super excited to to share this episode with you. And I don't want to I don't want to spoil anything, but we talk about education, working at the UN, meeting famous people, and. Uh, being a mother and doing school and just going out and trying new things as well as podcasting. So get excited for it. I hope you enjoy it. But before we get into it, I just want to remind you to take time out of your day today, even if it's just five minutes, five minutes, that's all it takes to sit and listen to someone in your life. Layla Jerusalem, welcome to My Wax Museum. Thanks, Alex. So, like I said, every episode we start off with how we know each other. So, would you like to to dive in to how we got in contact and uh, and I mean the the long extended story of how forever we've known each other? <laughs> I actually really love how we met each other because it's a testament to me of the communities that form and build through common interests. And in our case, it's our love of podcasting and it's the medium and the creativity within this medium that we get to share. So we, I'm assuming, both use Captivate as our platforms, which is why as our platform, which is why um, you were in that bi-monthly meetup and I made a suggestion that, you know, podcasters should support each other. And somehow that led to a group, a small group of people um, connecting with me directly and uh, following me. You were included in that group. And then we just started messaging each other uh, and shared each other's shows and got to listen to each other's shows. And I'll let you take it away from there. Yeah, so then I had you on on my or on the People of Home to talk about uh, censuses because you, you have your show, uh, 2020 Counts, which is wonderfully produced. I'm always impressed with it. Um, and, I, and it has like a very specific and important message that I'm sure we'll get into later in the show. Um, and... And yeah, so I had you on to talk about that. And I was like, you know what? You, you're great to have a chat with. Let's have you on My Wax Museum. And now here we are. Here we are. <laughs> so after that, I always jump into where you're from. So, so tell me a little bit, uh, where are you from originally? And what was life like there? Yeah, so I am half Iranian and half Filipino. My dad is from the Philippines and in the 70s, he worked in Iran, and that's where he met my mom, and that's where they married. They moved to the Philippines, which is where I was born. So I like to say that, um, you know, we spent, I spent the first 12 years of my life in the Philippines, the second 12 years of my life in California, and the last 12 years of my life in New York City. And then we moved back home a couple years ago. And so we're, and by home, I mean Los Angeles. So that, in a nutshell, is, um, you know, 
where I've lived and uh, the places I identify with. Uh, mostly I feel like I'm a Californian. I will say when you are mixed race, you don't actually feel completely like either one. And so, um, yeah, it's interesting. I don't quite feel Filipino, and that all makes sense, of course. You know, I don't quite feel Filipino. I don't quite feel Iranian. I don't quite feel American as an immigrant. Uh, so it's a very interesting place to live in my mind as far as my identity goes. Yeah. Yeah, that is really interesting um, and and very cool. Uh, so growing up in, in the Philippines, was there like, did, did you feel different because you were half Iranian? Yeah, completely. So um, just being mixed race in the Philippines, it's not as rare now uh, because there are just so many mixed race people all over the world. Um, but at that time, it was still fairly rare. And I was I looked just different enough to be almost a bit of a novelty. And so I think, you know, I grew up in this environment where I got a lot of attention for being a little bit different, you know, just just different. You know, my um, gosh, I'll just say something really uh, simple. So, for example, um, a lot of Filipinos are naturally hairless. It's a genetic thing. And um, not me, you know, not on the Persian side. And I think I remember growing up and having people just touch my arm and they would say, oh, my gosh, look at that. Look at all that hair. <laughs> <laughs> and I would just it's so funny because, you know, that's not always our favorite part of ourselves. And um, and so, I, yeah, I had a friend who lived there. This is a, a you know, white American guy. And he said people would often come up to him and say, wow, look at you and your like white pasty skin and your hairy arms and your big nose. And he's like, those are the three things I hate about myself. And so, um, so there was that. I'd say, you know, just the Filipino culture is incredibly, incredibly um, warm. It's very welcoming. That was incredible to... Um, grew up with. And I also happened to go to, you know, one of the best schools in the country. And so I'm really grateful that I had the opportunity to have such a solid education, uh, those formative years of my life. So yeah, that would be so interesting. Um, just being being that different, different person um where wherever you live um and then did you 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 said that that you were fortunate to go to the school so i'm assuming that you had an overall good experience there yeah I, um so the school itself was um like all girls um just very academically focused so the school itself was amazing like i said i'm an only child so we had the privilege as many people do in the developing world to have help at home um, you know, because oftentimes the school that you go to or that your kids go to tap you into a network of, of people, depending on who your peers are. And so 
right away, I, I feel like I had access to a lot of people who were very established in the country who, you know, opened up my world further. Um, you know, while we were in the Philippines, we vacationed um, a couple of times in the States. Most often, you know, we went to Iran, sometimes to Europe, um, but most often, uh, sorry, but a couple of times uh, to California to visit an aunt. And so that kind of opened up the idea of immigrating here. What was that like? Because uh, you said you were you were 12 when you moved to California. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And so what was that like for you as as a young, young child um, to to have to leave everything that you knew and and head to a totally different country across the ocean? Yeah, um, it was, I would say that <clears throat> it was tough. I, you know, had been brought up fairly independent. So, you know, even the flight, the official immigration and not vacation. So the official immigration flight to America, I took that by myself as a 12-year-old across the ocean because um, things needed to be wrapped up back in Kazan City, which is a suburb of Manila. Uh, so I, I still remember that flight. It was a United Airlines flight. Um, I remember exactly where I was sitting. Uh, and then it was rough because, you know, I, I went from what was a fairly comfortable situation that maybe if, if there were, if you could measure things by a pecking order, we were relatively at the top to a situation where we're starting at the bottom. And so my aunt lived in Northern California and I went to school that was, I would describe as mediocre. And that actually opened up my eyes to the American public school situation. I don't know how much you know about it, but for the most part, American schools, you know, you have some really great ones at the very, very top the elite schools, the really um, hard to live in the neighborhood of public schools. And then at the bottom, you have a lot of the worst schools. So schools on reservations, um, urban inner city schools, and those get a lot of attention for being pretty bad. And then you have like schools in the middle and they're just like, okay, schools. And I would describe a lot of them as um, not really serving the populations in which they're located. But anyway, so I went to mediocre school. It was co-ed. It was chaotic, um, busy, you know, and, and I think as an immigrant, you know, your parents don't know you, I, I don't know how much of this you get exposed to as a Canadian, but American shows depict schools, safe spaces I, I, I don't know how to explain that, but I, I just, I, I feel like you see an American TV show and there's like the lockers and there's the good kids and the bad kids. And for the most part, it's like an okay place. And, and in my case, it was like educationally just the worst. <laughs> there's no other way to explain it. I got really lucky and I got siphoned into these specific courses that are a lot more serious, like serious track, serious group of kids who are in these serious classes. So that's, I think, how I went through that 
system, but it opened my eyes for sure. Wow. Yeah, that would be quite the change. Um, were you like, wh what's the first thing you noticed when you walked through the doors of your new school? I would say just how ugly it was <laughs> and how dirty it was. Um, and, and by that, I don't mean that there was trash on the floor. I, I, I'd say, you know, Alex, that's so interesting that you tell me this because I've always been drawn to architecture and design and beautiful design. I truly believe that our, our environment affects our mood and how we live, um, whether we Im imbue our space with beauty affects our everyday life. And so I must have, you know, I didn't know how to articulate it as a kid, but I remember walking in, there were just like these tan lockers. It's the first thing you see, just like rows of tan lockers on the right side, on the left side, and stained floors. Yeah. Yeah, not yeah. not a very inspiring uh, image, I guess, eh? Especially not for, you know, education, you know, where you're supposed to reach your absolute potential. And I would I would venture to say that 50 plus percent of American schools will give you the same impression. Like I, you know, I, I have been in enough of them and we'll, well, we can talk about that later, right? Nothing actually, you know, nothing kind of breeds um, inspiration when you walk in. Yeah, which is too bad. Um, it really should. Uh, I mean, that's 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 where we're meant to learn and be inspired. Um, so, so growing up, then you said that you got siphoned into some higher level classes, and and uh, that that helped a little bit. Then, when when you completed school, um, or at least uh, your grade school, where did you go from there? Yeah. Uh, so. Finished element. I finished through sixth grade in the Philippines. I took a test and I skipped the seventh grade. Actually, so I thankfully only had to go to American public schools for for five years. Um, and then after that, oh my gosh, this is an interesting thing about the immigrant story is that I was on a student visa, um, and you are as well, Alex. Yeah, is yeah, I am. Okay, so I was on a student visa, and you'll have to tell me how it is for Canadians. I imagine because you uh, live in such a great country or from such a great country, it's not as much of a tension. Uh, but, you know, having a student visa, you kind of feel in limbo. So you can't really work, really, which means you can't really settle. And, and so, you know, for me... Being on a student visa gave me some safety, of course, but also uh, put me in limbo. And so after high school, even though we, even though, you know, I'd gotten into a couple of universities, uh, we decided that I would go to our local community college. And by then we had moved to Southern California because my mom's Persian side of the family was established here. And so I went to the local um, community college, which which at the time made me feel a lot of shame because I felt like I, you know, should have been elsewhere. Um, and it was still quite expensive to go to it, uh, even though it was a community college because I was on a student visa. So I ended up being there for three years uh, and... 
then at the end of the third year, we got our green card or sometime during my third year, got a green card. And it was the most exhilarating, amazing moment. And the first thing I did was move to Ithaca, New York, where I had some friends and just lived in Ithaca. Um, I had some friends who were going to school at Cornell and uh, just lived there, worked there, and attended as many classes as I could, uh, which, you know, it's an open campus, so you kind of just walk in. It was pretty amazing. And this whole, yeah, this whole Ivy League world was opened up to me that I'd never encountered or imagined, Alex. Like, this is, you know, this was just an amazing, amazing world. You felt like the opportunities were endless and the campus was beautiful. And um, so that that just opened up open open things up even further so yeah that's amazing um and and having a green card does open everything up compared to being on a student visa you're you're totally right a student visa you feel trapped but uh but then yeah with your green card you can you can go go anywhere um and work and go to school and you know basically live your life i know and i think you know also being on a student and not being able to work i think you know, that's why like podcasting is such an incredible expression of, of that freedom in a way, right? I don't know if you feel that way or not. Yeah, yeah, I totally do. Because um, you're just able to talk uh, and have have these great conversations. So then you're you're over in Ithaca. Um, where did you go from there? Like, what did you figure you wanted to do with your life while you were in New York? Yeah, so, you know, being a child of an Iranian you get a lot of the um you get an earful on the industries that are allowed <laughs> to enter and none of them are creative in the conventional sense i know people who are in them can be creative and uh you know really move mountains with their creativity but uh I don't think everyone who's in these industries can, and those are medicine, law, and engineering. And that is pretty much it. Uh, it's it's what I think a lot of immigrants who speak on this topic say their parents expected of them. And so I did hear an earful about becoming a doctor, becoming a doctor, becoming a doctor. At the same time, I had this creative side, uh, which I suppressed. And so while I was in Ithaca, I applied to schools back here in California and uh, ended up getting into uh, UC San Diego, which um, if you know, like UC ranking, so it's like Berkeley, UCLA, UCSD, and sometimes we're in com competition for third place with Irvine, but it was a solid place to go. And and so after that incredible year in Ithaca, I was sort of on a high from from that experience. So I came back home, uh, went to San Diego, and wanted to really take advantage of life there as well as I had in, in Ithaca. And so I took Esperanto classes. Uh, there's a cafe on campus named after Che Guevara. Like I hung out in the Che Cafe. I joined as many interesting groups as I could. I tried to walk to campus as much as I could because that is, you know, such an Ithaca thing to do. 
and so, um, and I started majoring in biology. And pretty soon I realized this is not for me. I'm not interested in organic chemistry. I'm not interested in any of these topics. I think I took the first year of like all the major prerequisites, um, biology, chemistry, um, anatomy, those types of things. And uh, very, very quickly realized it wasn't for me. I also double majored in at the time it was called third world studies. Maybe they've changed it by now. I also happened to, you know, know someone who was of great influence to me in Ithaca who was in love with economics and he had studied computer science and we can, and that's also very interesting because he actually got his computer science degree at the height of the bubble before the bubble. Okay. At the height of the bubble. So he was just being recruited left and right his senior year at Cornell, but at the same time he was very much um, promoting this idea of economics as the way to save the world, that you can understand the world better if you study econ. It was all about econ. And while I was in Ithaca, I took a couple of econ. I, I know I say take, but I sat in a couple of econ classes. And it it made sense to me, Alex. I'm sure that's why you chose it as well. Um, and there I was, you know, sad in my bio classes. And then I thought, okay, econ. So I had to apply to you to have it as a major. And that is what I ended up majoring in. And it was one of the best decisions in my life because it, there's so much poetry in econ and people think that it's just this sort of lifeless, boring topic, but it's, it's actually really meaningful and and beautiful and it explains the world to you in a way that is very explicitly you know maybe grim and to the point but also you know provides you a means to see things uh, that can be the potential of what our world can be and then all the philosophies behind the theories is pretty interesting. Learning about all the great economists and, and their theories is amazing. So that was that was great. So I ended up graduating with a double major. And um, yeah, and then I, yeah, so that was, um, that, that was also a great experience. I did end up spending three years there. So I'll say that it took me seven years to get my undergraduate degree, which... It's hard for me even to say out loud because I spent so much time feeling like it shouldn't have been that way. But I think a lot of people need to hear that some of us take detours in life and that's okay. Yeah, and everybody's on their own path, right? Um, so you, you, you took seven years, you got your undergrad degree. In that time, what do you think is the single most important thing that you learned? In those seven years, in the context of school and education? Or just in general? So in those seven years, the most important thing that I learned is to be committed. Oh, gosh. I think there are two. One is you know this commitment to being who you are, and who you were meant to be and listening to 
the signs in your life that are leading you in that direction. And the other thing is to, you know, the other profound thing for me is to just put your foot in front of the other without fear. I think that was for me, I think the seed was planted. I won't say that I lived that to the max um, of living without fear, but I think I think a seed was planted uh, and a lot of that blossoming is happening now, but uh, the, the seed was planted of thinking, gosh, I can do things that are really, really scary and hard. I think school school tends to do that to people and uh, and life as you grow up tends to do that. If you try, if you put yourself out there, uh, you'll start to figure how much you can actually do. Um, did you did you end up going to to grad school after that or did you take your undergrad and run? Yeah, so I after that worked for a money manager in San Diego and around that time met the man who would become my husband and um he so you know by this time I was older than maybe so this would have been yeah I was older than like a typical graduate um I'd been working for this money manager I'd started dating someone who was based actually in Pasadena where we were living at the time or you know home was I was living in San Diego and then I um decided to apply for a program called Teach for America. And Teach for America was created by a woman named Wendy Kopp back when she was a senior at Princeton. I think she may have started it in 1989. The first cohort happened in 1990. But the theory behind Teach for America, which I'll call TFA, is that our schools are in trouble. A lot of them are in trouble and essentially, there is nobody there to, gosh, how do I say this without sounding like I'm just trying to, you know, um, so I'll just say that there's nobody there to continue to, to challenge how we run our schools. And, and the reason she thought that is because she was on campus as a senior and all the big, big companies. So JP Morgan, um, Goldman Sachs, you know, you just keep naming all of the, you know, Morgan Stanley, McKinsey, Boston Consulting. So all the big companies, all the important companies, all the powerful companies were on campus at Princeton trying to recruit the smartest people basically in the world to go work for them. And the same thing was happening at Harvard, Yale, and and it and she just looked around and she said, "Where are all the school districts? Why aren't they trying to draw from, you know, the most accomplished uh, pool of students?" I, I'm I'm putting words in her mouth, but this is just my interpretation of what she may have been thinking. So she wrote her senior thesis on this topic, and ended up presenting it and one professor in particular was very very supportive and so she started Teach for America basically recruiting 
um, seniors at these top schools to go teach for two years in school districts uh, where there might be teacher shortages or, um, you know, many other types of issues. And so, um, and it was introduced to me actually when I was in Ithaca, again, like putting yourself in good places because I remember there was a guy named Avery who had gotten into TFA and I just remember so many whispers, you know, and everybody was like, oh my gosh, you know, he, he's, he's doing TFA next year. It was like such a big deal that he was leaving this industry and then going to do Teach for America. And so I had, that seed had been planted while I was in Ithaca. So after working for a money manager, realizing, oh my gosh, I do not want to do this, I applied for TFA and got into the Newark, New Jersey cohort. And at some point, Newark was like the murder capital of America. And so I knew it was going to be tough. And you, you're accepted about a year before you actually start teaching. And so during that year, you know, my husband and I ended up getting engaged. And then, you know, we got married several months after that. Then we moved to Newark, New Jersey. And my husband is blonde and blue-eyed. And Newark is predominantly African-American. So that was a really interesting dynamic as well. We chose to live in Newark. A lot of other TFA folks chose to live elsewhere uh, because partly of Newark's reputation or they were established in other cities. But we decided to live in the heart of the city, and that was an interesting experience. Um, I taught there for two years. We both went to grad school afterwards. I went to NYU and studied public policy uh, and got my MPA. And then after that, I worked at the UN, which was really fun, <laughs> but also disappointing in many ways. And then, um, yeah, should we should we stop there? Yeah, I mean, if if you if you have more you want to say about that stuff, you can keep talking. Um, I just, I mean, that's a lot of experience. Like you've you've tried a lot of things and you've gone a lot of places. Um, so, so I kind of want to hear a little bit more about this uh, the Teach for America experience. Like, what what did you do? In, in that, did you just go in and teach lessons just like a normal teacher? So I studied um, econ, as you know, and uh, during the summer before you teach, you take several exams to see what you're actually qualified to teach, uh, you know, as one way to decide where you're going to be placed. But also they look at the needs in the community. And I and two other TFA cohorts were placed in one school. It was an elementary school, K-8, to and I taught fifth grade math and science. And I definitely was the only person of, um, you know, <laughs> Filipino or Iranian descent, um, but it was predominantly African-American and uh, some Latino students. And you know, you get a summer training with TFA that happened in the Bronx. It's called Institute. That was also a really incredible experience because you're working, getting trained from 6 a.m. to midnight every day for uh, most of the summer. And 
that was really formative as well. It, it nothing prepares you like being in the classroom. So once I got to uh, to Newark and the school is called Brigaw Avenue. It's since then has it's been taken over by a charter network, and I think that's great. Uh, so I started there, and it was it was tough. So my students. Most of them didn't know their multiplication tables. And if you know anything about multiplication tables, you know that we are asked to memorize them by the end of third grade. Uh, Most of them couldn't do basic math functions. And so it was a challenge. I remember going down the hall to the fourth grade math and science teacher and I asked him, you know, what are some tips for teaching these kids, these same kids that you had? last year and he said you know I stopped teaching 10 years ago what yeah and this was early in the year so I didn't even know what that meant and then I found out later that he actually had a library of VHS movies in his classroom and a ton of popcorn he also had a microwave and he would almost on a daily basis pop popcorn and show kids a movie. And he was near retirement, and he was checked out. Let's just say that I realized pretty quickly I was on my own. Um, There were a couple of teachers who cared very, very deeply, and they went on to do incredible things elsewhere in the district. and so th- that's the whole like reason TFA was created because that's actually what's happening in a lot of American schools. And so that first year was tough. I got into this crazy accident in the beginning of the school year where I broke five ribs and lacerated my kidney, spleen, and liver and bruised a lung. And you know that took me out for a little bit. And it just was a challenging year. So I came back. I had to like sit in a chair while I taught. It was tough. I'll say like I did my best that first year. First year teaching is always the toughest. Um, And then things started to go in a different direction, Alex, because I, you know, the district mandates you to attend these monthly meetings to train you. And I went to one in the middle of the year and... I was sitting across another teacher, fifth grade, somewhere else in the district, and there was a warm-up question on the board. That's pretty typical for teachers. They put up a warm-up question. And the question was, is 52 divisible by 2? So that's fine. You know, fifth grade warm-up question, 52 divisible by 2. We all know what the answer is. The teacher across from me took out a pencil and paper and started doing long division. Wow. Exactly. And I looked at that and I thought, (laughs) I'm out of here. I am not ever coming back to one of these trainings again. And so to the defiance, I I was defiant, but no one like was actually tracking where I was. They just knew that I had to leave the campus. So I would go down the street. There was a KIPP school, which was started by TFA alums that was doing incredible things. They were teaching kids through music. They were requiring kids to get there by 7 and leave at 5. They were they were just doing innovative stuff. They were having kids believe in themselves and do all these chants or they knew they were going to go to college. They were the same kids, same neighborhood, but it was a whole different – they had to wear a uniform – uh, the teachers could be contacted at all hours, and it was pretty much staffed by you know young 
TFA alums mostly who were just ready to like change the world. And I knew that school existed. So I went and I sat in on a couple of their fifth grade classes. And it was like all, it was so disciplined. It was so beautiful. It was like magic to watch. Everything was taught through music. All the multiplication tables were memorized through music. It was incredible. And so I just started watching master teachers do their thing. And then that summer, I spent a lot of time on camp on that campus to learn how they actually start the school year because that's actually such an important part of teaching is what you establish early on. One of the things they did is they had the kids earn their desks and chairs. So everyone had to sit on the floor, whole campus. It just took a couple of days. It wasn't like three weeks, but it was a couple of days of this is this is who we are. We're going to go to college, you know, um, making sure that people understood what the rules were. And that just like blew my mind. It blew my mind. And so I took that back to my classroom and the other fifth grade teacher was also a TFA person. So I got her on board and we started the year off in that way. Everyone sat on the floor. We talked to them about you know, all these different values. I had different songs that, you know, that I would adjust so that they understood that we were all going to college. Um, Unfortunately, after about, you know, three days of that, there was this protest outside of the school. And guess who it was? (laughs) It it was parents who were protesting the idea that kids had to de- earn their desks and chairs. So they're, you know, actually like protesting, protesting me, which was just so scary, you know, as a 20 plus year old, you're in this community that you are getting to know and they basically think that you're evil. And, and so gosh, I had a couple conversations with a parent and one of them was like, you know, I really want my son to uh, have a basketball career in the NBA and this is totally going to ruin it. It was just like that kind of stuff. And I I was scared. I was scared for a couple of days. Um, luckily, by the time this happened, most of the kids had earned their desks and chairs uh, and so um, then the district got wind that this was happening and they assigned the assistant superintendent to my classroom to be with me, which actually was amazing because if you know anything about teaching, the more adults you have in a classroom, the better. So just having another body who understood the community and was from that community uh, was it was such a gift. So in a way, it ended up working out. He eventually was replaced by somebody else who had to be in my classroom at all times, which is, again, incredible. Um, and I forgot to mention that that year, I really had worked on creating a beautiful environment for the kids. So, you know, my husband and I created whiteboards out of... Um, out of bathtub tile boards. You can buy these at Home Depot. So we put them, we Velcroed them onto the chalkboard and it was just like a white, um, beautiful white board at the very front of the classroom. I brought in a ton of plants. I 
brought in lots of you know rugs and just just things that would beautify and create a really nice environment and um so it was a really different experience first to second year and that year I you know I had a couple of Saturday sessions with the students and that year my students went from 10% uh on grade level to, you know, everyone is tested every year. It's called the New Jersey ask. And so they went from being, from having 10% mastery in fourth grade to 90% mastery in fifth grade, uh, for the general ed students in my class. And it was an amazing year. So I'll, I'll just say that we visited Princeton, we visited NYU, we visited Columbia, we went to Rutgers, we were on the CBS morning show. It it was amazing. Wow. It it was amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. That's a, wild. It's wild. And the best part of this is that a couple years later, I, after I'd left, the, there was a TFA guy who was teaching eighth grade math, and he said he could always tell which ones had been in my class because they knew their math. So that was the best gift Wow, that's got to feel good, eh? Yeah. So having had uh, this experience then, um, and then you mentioned you worked at the UN, um, and then, like, where where have you gone since then, and, and how did you get from there to where you are now? Yeah, so something that you'll find interesting is, I don't know if you know who Cory Booker is. He is a state senator from New Jersey. He ran for president. Okay. He ran for mayor of Newark when we were there. So that was another formative experience is that he was there. He'd lost his first election. He won the second one. And I got to vote for him as a citizen because I became a citizen shortly before I got married because then the five years of the green card had passed. And and so I got to vote in my first election in America, in Newark, for Cory Booker, which is one of the most, he's one of the most inspirational people of all time. And uh, and you should look him up because there's a lot to, to learn about him. But, but one thing that you'll find interesting is that every single job I've had, I got because I had a connection. And so my money management job out of college was that way. Um, the only one that I didn't was TFA because you have to apply and go through this pretty rigorous um, process. But after TFA did grad school, while I was at grad school, I met someone who was working at the UN for um, an organization tied to the office of the secretary general Um that uh, th- that had a primary job of working with the missions, and the missions are all the different countries, and running different programs for the missions or programs alongside the missions. And so my friend uh, posted a job opening, and I applied. And, uh, you know, I got the job while I was still in grad school, and I ended up staying for a couple of years after I'd graduated and, you know, the job itself wasn't anything fancy. I wasn't on, you know, this project that helped end global warming or, um, you know, create policy. But what it gave me access to was, A, just being at the UN and um, kind of understanding how the how the place works and realizing pretty quickly that 
even though the UN is kind of revered, especially outside of America, I knew I'd, I'd grown up thinking it was such a big deal. You know, there were so many disappointing aspects of it, mostly that I felt that there were people there who weren't mission driven, and they were just sort of there to work at the UN and see how high they could get up. Uh, in the, and, and the example for that is that I was, like, I'd often hear, like, in the cafeteria, people talking about, you know, what they're applying for next, or, like, I'm looking, like, it just, it just felt like there wasn't a larger mission driving everybody other than the fact that they were at the UN. Uh, and I can't, and I know there are people in the field who are doing incredible work, but I'm talking about just the office in New York, a handful of people I was exposed to. Uh, but what it did give me access to were were economists. Um, I'd been studying people like Joe Stieglitz and Jeff Sachs and Bill Easterly at NYU. And then to actually, um, well, Bill Easterly taught at NYU, so he was easy to talk to. But, you know, Joe Stieglitz and Jeff Sachs, like those are, a, those are big deal economists. And so just, a, and I also, and I, recommend this to everybody you just have to be kind to everyone because the people who gave me the most access were the security guards so I made friends with them pretty early on and you know I was kind to them they were kind to me and they would provide they would provide like the schedule of the day with a list they had everybody who was coming that day with a list of who was coming. And so I made it a point to attend all those meetings. Uh, that's how I met Joe Stieglitz. And I just happened to be walking by and I saw him and I was like, Joe. And he was like, are you supposed to pick me up? And I was like, no, actually, I'm literally just like walking by. Um, but just so that um, that's how I met Bono. I went to the Republic of Ireland thing that they were having. And he was amazing. I, you know, asked him a couple questions and he was just so warm. I mean, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Kidman, Charlize Theron. Um, I saw Barack Obama speak uh, and Gaddafi, who is no longer alive. I cornered Jeff Sachs and asked him some questions and he gave me his card. Um, Who else? And on and on, I would say. Um, So in a way, so I think that is you know, if nothing else, the UN has really become a forum for ideas. Um, sorry, it's not like a TED, like the, the TED movement is really pretty amazing on spreading ideas. But I feel like a lot of people came to the UN to present their ideas. And I tried to attend as many of those moments as I could. Um, I just thought of something else that was, to me, significant. Oh, this is not what I thought of, but I'll just say that they filmed Transformers there. And like, I, you know, like a lot of the staff were like extras and that was sort of interesting to be in the general assembly while that was happening. Um, but yeah, so all of that was really, really cool. And I took advantage of it. And then, um, I got pregnant and had a baby around that time and during, and I think he was a few months in, oh, back to the whole connections thing, I happened to be at a Teach for America alumni event where I was telling somebody in the KIPP network, it was, this was years before um, the story. I was still in grad school. I was at this event. I went up to a group of 
men um, because I knew one of them was running that KIPP school that had changed my life. And I just went up to him and I was like, Ryan, let me tell you like everything that happened just because I observed at your school. And I told him like I almost and I opened it up with like, Ryan, you almost got me fired. And and so he listened and he at the end gave me his card. He's like, if you ever want to teach, you know, here's my card. Uh, but what I didn't know is that in that group of people who were standing there, one of them was this, uh, very, uh, how do I explain, uh, very well networked, uh, hedge fund manager named Whitney Tilson, who was on CNBC all the time. He's just a big hedge fund manager. He has a public presence. Like I had no idea he was one of those guys. And after Ryan, he gave me his card and said, I love that story. Send it to me. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to include it in my email list. So I go home, I Google him, and I was like, oh, my gosh, like this guy is a really big deal. And so fast forward to two years later when – oh, and I joined his email list. Fast forward two years later, I'd had my son, and I see this email from Whitney – and he is hiring someone to help him work on his education reform stuff. And I saw that and this electricity went through my body. I called my husband and we're like, okay, you got to apply. So I did about a week late, but it was a very sincere application. You know, Alex, it was just one of those things where I just said this. I'm like humbled by you. Like, this is how we met. Obviously, like the TFA thing was big because turns out he actually also helped start TFA did all like he was a senior I think at he was a junior I think at Harvard while Wendy Kopp was a senior at Princeton and he was classmates with her brother I mean just the amazing like connections that happen when we show up you know so he had helped start TFA and it was a big proponent of it and I just wrote him the sincere letter and he hired me so then that was an incredible ride because I went from the cool things those that were happening at the UN to this world of like politicians and billionaires in New York that I was now exposed to. And and so the most significant thing for me was just learning from this man how to live, you know, live life sincerely, you know, speak your truth be kind to everyone. Don't be afraid to state your opinions. Build an email list. So one thing Whitney does after meeting any person the next day, within 24 hours, he'll email that person, tell them how thankful he was to have met them, and then include an article. Like, this is something that we talked about that I think you'll find interesting. And he's steadily built an email list of tens of thousands of people over the years and has built an entire business around that. But at the time he was managing a hedge fund and I just got to do stuff for him mostly from home, which was great because I had had a son. Um, and yeah, so I'd say Whitney was also a pretty significant moment in my life and you should look him up. Yeah, yeah, I will. That sounds amazing. Um, yeah, it's so cool to hear about all the experiences different people have. 
And uh, I mean, you've been all over the world, you've done all these interesting things. Um, and so, so now, uh, culminating on all these experiences you have right now. And what are you doing now? Yeah. So after I worked, so Whitney, I worked for Whitney for a couple of years and then, um, he had to close his fund eventually. Uh, and I ended up working part-time for him and did that for a couple of years and then applied for a job at college board and ended up running a program called AP with we service, which is including service in the AP curriculum. And so through that, then I was plugged into a different type of network, including a partnership with the WE organization, which is an incredible organization with lots of incredible people, um, and got the opportunity to to travel for sure. Uh, but also, um, but also, I think I told you, you know, speak in front of crowds of like 15,000 people to promote my program alongside people like Selena Gomez or Neil Patrick Harris or Jennifer Aniston and Morgan Freeman. The list goes on and on. So that was an incredible experience. And those are called We Days, in which you we talked about. And so, um, and so, you know, that that was also interesting because I had now been in almost three consecutive jobs where I was exposed to a lot of creative people and people who were doing things that were out of the norm, which is sort of how I wanted to model my life. Um, and so I just, I just thought that it was an interesting sign, Alex, that, you know, the college board creates tests. That is the, the bulk of what they do and how they, how the college board, um, makes makes its money it is a nonprofit, but that's what it's how it serves it's through exams and so the idea that I was put on the one project where I was doing something so radically different from everybody else uh just felt like like a a bit of a sign you know Like, like sorry the planting of a sign like I I didn't know it at the time but it would lead me to all these other things. And so the most important thing I learned at College Board is how to lead in a more granular granular way. I think a lot of people who are ambitious have a lot of leadership experience. You know, you're maybe told you're a natural born leader and you can motivate people. But to really lead, you need to manage people. You need to manage schedules. You need to manage ideas and put it all together and see the big picture and move things forward so you know you have to spend time in spreadsheets and you also have to spend time managing a partnership or different accounts and and so that was that was formative in that way um I will say so this leads me then to now and everything that's happening now is pretty crazy because it's all connected to that while I was at college board even though it was an incredible experience, I started feeling an itch. This would have been in late 2018. I just started feeling like I no longer fit the culture, fit the work that I was doing, fit my team. Like all these feelings are coming up and I happened to go to my son's, we're now in California, 
Um, so I worked at the college board, which I did in New York for a couple years. I moved back home to California. I worked remotely. And I was at a luncheon for my son, for a, for mother's, mother's luncheon. I go to my table and some semi-formal, so maybe we had place cards, I'm not sure. But I ended up sitting next to the one dad who was there. And we started talking and... I find out that he's a producer in the film industry and I we start keep talking and I say well what's what's the best what are some highs and lows of being in the film industry and he says well there's a lot of lows and he says but the highs are amazing like winning an Emmy so he I find out that he's actually the executive producer and creator of you know shows like 24 some of the Star Trek ones, some of some of the more like thriller types, I think maybe even Dexter. So I thought, okay, this is an amazing person. And um, we just chatted and I said, you know, I feel like I've always been drawn to this industry because of its, um, this, the creative aspect. And we just talked through that. He was complaining about how he can't ever find any good proofreaders. <laughs> and I honestly, at that moment, I was like, I'm going to suggest myself, but I didn't want to because I didn't have time. I didn't have the capacity to proofread anything. Uh, but that conversation like planted a seed in my mind. And I did a couple weeks later, I said, hey, if you need any help, like I'm available to just even read like ideas or screenplays or whatever. Um, so that happened. And then in 2019, I also... Um, Gosh, I'm getting all the times wrong, but I'll just say that I had gained quite an amount of weight after having our last child up to like 60 pounds, which is pretty huge. And I started like exercising in the fall of, I want to say 2018 and being very consistent with it until early 2019 when I wanted to really be consistent with it. And I said a prayer and... I just said, I got to up this, like I have got to up this. And that next morning or sometime during that week, I woke up at like 4.30 in the morning. And I don't know about you, Alex, but I'm a night owl. And that was such a mystery to me. Like, how could I be waking? Like, I just woke up and I was like, how is this happening? Like, what's happening? And I just took it as a sign. And I said, okay, that means I got to start working out at 4.30. And so I started working out and, you know, my body had started changing and I, you know, eventually lost like 25 pounds and I'm still working on the rest right now. But at that time, I'd started building this habit of like working out every day, working out early. And one of those times I was on the treadmill, this would have been early in the year, 2019, I was on the treadmill and I saw a splash page for Queer Eye. Do you know this show? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Have you watched it like ever? I haven't watched it, but I've heard a lot about it. Okay. So I'd seen the splash page a million times and ignored it. And finally, this one time I was like, okay, fine. I'm going to watch Queer Eye. I was totally amazed by it. I like, I, I, I was hooked on Queer Eye. I came home. I was like, family, we are binge watching this show. Like we're doing nothing else except watching Queer Eye. <laughs> and that show is pretty incredible. 
but one person in particular, his name is Karamo Brown. He is like the psychologist of the group. And he says things like, exactly like you said earlier, Alex, like you've got to put yourself out there and, you know, conquer your fear and take care of yourself and all this like cool mental health stuff. And Karamo really resonated with me like deeply. And I watched all the shows and around that time I started saying, oh my gosh, I have to start this podcast that I've been wanting to start for years. Like my husband bought me podcasting equipment. I was looking at our Amazon orders in 2015. Like I've been talking about this for years. And once I heard Mark Maron's interview of Barack Obama, do you know the Mark Maron show? I just was like, oh, he just asked him the most inane questions. And I thought, I can do this. Like I would have asked. I know it's easy to say, but I really feel like I would have. And I just kept thinking like, I can do this. I can do this. But that fall, that spring, actually watching Karamo Brown, I thought, I've got to do this. I've got to do this. And so as all of this was like bubbling up in my heart, my mind, my body, I'm assigned to speak at another We Day in L.A. And I didn't know what at the time would have been the last one I would have been speaking at. Neil Patrick Harris was the host. And I will say that when I was a little girl in the Philippines, I was obsessed with Neil Patrick Harris. And just the idea of having been like this 12-year-old Filipina girl, you know, watching Neil Patrick Harris, could I have imagined in a million years that I would have been sharing a stage with him in Los Angeles? I mean, at the forum. Like, it was unbelievable. And Neil Patrick was hosting. And I hadn't really looked at the lineup, or maybe I had, can't remember. But my husband and I and two older kids are walking backstage. And who do we run into? Karamo Brown from Queer Eye. Really? And I just look at him. I was like, oh my gosh, you have changed my life. Like, you're so inspirational. He was like, oh, thank you. Gave me a hug, gave the kids a hug, gave my husband a hug. And then we parted ways. And I turned to my husband and I said, why did I leave it? Like, why didn't I like tell him how much he's actually helped my life, you know? And so I was a little bit like kicking myself. And then I go into the makeup room and then I come out and who is standing there? (laughs) Karamo Brown. And this time I was not going to squander it, Alex. I just said to him, Karamo, you have inspired me to start this podcast. When I do, will you be on it? And he was like, 100%. So he gave me his email address. And that was like the push that I needed, Alex. And I, you know, I just like got things going. First of all, you know how it always has to start with yourself. So I had to like actually believe that I can actually do this. And of course, husband, like very encouraging. And that summer things went really, really south work-wise. And of course, like it was time for me to leave. There was no other way it would have happened. Um, And I remember again, like just putting it out in the universe, you know, just like, I would love to quit. The only thing better than quitting would be to be let go so I can get a severance. And that's exactly what happened. So I was let go in the summer and I just like got on it. You know, I wasn't again, like going to squander this opportunity. So I started like meeting with people 
just trying to do as many things as possible to get my dreams moving forward. And I met with um, someone I had helped run for office a year prior. And she and I really connected on... Oh, and the podcasting thing was interesting because in May, oh my gosh, after I met Karamo that week, I was scrolling through LinkedIn and I saw a posting by somebody I knew through Teach for America who had just won a Webby Award for executive producing Pod Save the People. And I was like, what? I was like, Jessica Cordova Kramer, my like TFA email person who was sending me like updates, just won a Webby. Like, I couldn't believe it. So I immediately reached out to her and I was like, we've got to talk podcasting. And, you know, she's like a whole different level, you know. Um, So it was just amazing to talk to her. And she she said, you've got to create a podcast that is true to who you are. The market is saturated. There's like no point in trying to be like anybody else. And I told her, you know, I'm connected to all these different celebrities. You know, we didn't talk about like the schools my kids went to in New York, but um, that's a whole different world. Like I could open up or tap into if I wanted to. Same here in LA. But I, she just said, why don't you do something on being Filipino Iranian and like on identity? And then she says, like, what about the census? Like the census is coming. Nobody knows what it's about. Do something on that. So seed planted. I ended up meeting with a friend. Oh my gosh, Alex, I'm talking to you. I'm like, this is so crazy. I ended up helping a friend run for office because she was married to a guy I was roommates with in Ithaca. Like I, I came back to LA, connected to Oliver for another reason, because he's a lawyer, a trademark lawyer here in LA, and I had a couple questions. And his wife was running for office, so I ended up meeting her, helped her run. That was really fun, like knocking door to door and talking to people was awesome. And then she was at a crossroads because she'd lost the election. So last summer we were both at a crossroads. And I was telling her about my crazy ride and the podcasting thing, which she had also been thinking about. And I said, the census. It was suggested to me by this woman um, who I know through TFA. And of course, coincidentally, Allison, my census partner, that woman who was running for office, was also a TFA alum. And she knew Jess Cordova Kramer because they had parallel jobs at TFA um, after they taught. Um, Allison was in LA, Jess was in New York. And so it just all came together. And she's like, I was like, do you want to do the census with me? She was like, yeah, I do. She cared about like policy and politics. And so we went on this crazy census ride and almost nobody has said no to us. Like we interviewed the chief historian at the census. We interviewed three UCLA professors who all happened to be available on the same day. And the UCLA studio, their sound their sound studio, was available on that same day for like for three hours, which he was like, this never happens. It literally like never happens. And just stuff like that. It, it, and Maz Jabrani, the comedian, He's an Iranian comedian, Iranian-American comedian, who did a census video. Hilarious. We watched the video and we're like, oh, I wonder if we could get Moz. This was back in like September, October. I reached out to his people, talked to several people. They were all like, no, no, no. You are like, we cannot, like Moz is too busy. 
And then I happened to be in a, I just say this out loud. I'm like, what's happening? I happened to be in a screenwriting class last fall because that's the other one of the four things I'm pursuing. And and I was sitting there and somebody was like, we were just talking about like our lives. And I was like, oh, my gosh, guys, I really need to find somebody who knows Moz so I can get him on our census podcast. And somebody was like, oh, I have his email address. Really? It was crazy. So she emailed Moz. We ended up getting Moz. That was a big deal. Um, and then, like, we got this human rights lawyer. We got somebody who is um, a senior advisor on the, in the Obama administration. I could go on and on. So the census podcast and podcasting in general, um, you know, that's that's happening. And I have a couple more shows like I have an IVF show for which I've interviewed. Um, I, I only want to do limited series. I forgot to say that. Like I mostly want to do limited series. And so the census is a limited series. The IVF is going to be a limited series. And then a couple other shows I'm thinking about. So I got a Zoom H6. I also got a Yeti. <laughs> and I got a MacBook Air. Learning the ropes, just like you, Alex. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Honestly, it's the best hobby in the world. Like I, I love it. That that is so crazy how it all came together to fit like that. It is and everything is connected. Everything, you know? Yeah. So um so why don't you because on your on your show you do such a good job at driving home the importance of the census and it has a lot to do um like I can kind of see um some of the seeds planted uh, in in your your feeling towards the importance of it, just by your experience in school and as an immigrant, and all of these things that have culminated to this, right? Like everything's connected, like you said, and and so why don't you take ju- just a second to um, basically share the message of your show and and just promote why the census is so important. The census is important because it is the only act that the U.S. federal government does in which all of us are truly equal. So in the U.S., not everybody can vote. Not everyone pays taxes. Different people have access to different things except for the census. And I'm almost directly quoting one of our guests, Arturo Vargas, in episode one. And... The census counts everybody, whether you're a day old, 100 days old, 100 years old, you count. And that's an incredibly powerful medium. It also provides two very important things, one based in the U.S. Constitution. It's that the census is the basis for how representation is allocated in the House of Representatives. So... In the U.S., you can have 435 House of uh, members of the House of Representatives, and this is allocated throughout the country based on population. And then in addition to that, the census also determines how federal funds are allocated. Around a trillion dollars of funds are determined based on census data. And then in addition to that, census data might inform all kinds of industries on how to act. So businesses uh, are informed 
where to open. Uh, nonprofits might know how to target their services better. Where should hospitals be opened? Where should schools be opened? And so, you know, the census is pretty incredible. And we learned recently, speaking to our interviewee from the Obama administration, that there's pretty much no place in American society that is not affected by census data and all kinds of everyday things that we do is affected by the census. And two of our interviewees believe that the census is more powerful than voting. And one of them believes that it is 10 times at least more powerful than voting because your count is going to count for the next 10 years before the next census. So it, it, it matters. Uh so get counted um, and listen to 2020 counts. I think you do such a good job of putting together the whole argument of it. Um, and I, I really enjoy your show. Uh, looking forward to the future, as you as you progress in this world of podcasting, as you work on all these other projects and and you're, you're a mother and you have this family and you have all this stuff going on. So going forward into the future, tell, tell me... Uh, What's what's the big dream? What's the big goal? The big goal is to be a bona fide podcasting network where I might host a couple of shows, but develop several shows that are tied to giving voice to the voiceless or underrepresented in our country and the world. Uh, in addition to that, I keep thinking about a number in my mind of what is what is the goal like right now um i would love for 2020 counts to get to 10,000 downloads and i just keep thinking of the number a million it doesn't have to be 20 counts it can be any show but i just keep thinking a million like that's my goal is a million like what is it going to take to get there so allison and i started the actual media company together to support these shows and 2020 counts is the beginning. That's awesome. I I love how how you're looking to the future um, with such an in such a specific goal of you know you're you're not just making shows for the heck of it. You you want to give voice to to the people who maybe don't have so much of that voice, um, and, and bring those stories and those ideas to light. Um, so, so then jumping forward as we wrap it up here, jumping forward to the end of your life, hopefully, you know, you're well over a hundred years old and you're looking back and thinking about all the things that you've done, everything you've accomplished, the people that you've met. Uh, tell me what are the things that you're most proud of and what are the things you're most satisfied with? So what I'm most proud of are the relationships that I have cultivated and built and the amount of compassion and kindness that have been added to the world because I have been in it and I have tried to make that a theme in my life professionally to be compassionate and kind where we can and to truly support each other. And so that is that is what I hope my legacy will be built on, relationships and the adding of 
more kindness and compassion. Yeah, I love that. And I, th- I think that's a, that's a goal a lot of people share. And, and I think that's delightful. Um, so wrapping it up here, uh, last question. Uh, where can people find you? Where can people find uh, 2020 Counts and everything else that you're doing? 2020 Counts can be found on all major podcasting platforms and some minor ones. And you can also visit our website, bridgermedia.com. That's B-R-I-D-G-R media.com. Well, thank you very much for joining me and uh, sharing these amazing stories with me today. Alex, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for letting me give you an earful. And thank you for listening, not just to this show, which we certainly do appreciate, but more to the people around you, the people in your life that you just happen to know. Take some time, just five minutes, to listen intently to the people around you. Mecco.